Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant and a co-founder of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. And I'm Karen Bodnar. I am an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and a general pediatrician. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. And this podcast is sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Just so you know, the content of our podcasts does not necessarily reflect official policies or protocols of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Hi, Karen. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good, good. Staying pretty busy? Very busy. Even Having a not- good summer. Even though it's not flu season, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, makes flu, makes it makes flu season seem pretty crazy. So, um, why don't you go ahead with what uh, in, with an article that you would like to share today? Alrighty, that sounds great. So, um, the first thing I wanted to share with you was an article from um, the most recent volume of Breastfeeding Medicine um, from June 2013. And it's an um, original research article titled, The Cost of Using Donor Human Milk in the NICU to Achieve Exclusive Human Milk Feeding Through 32 Weeks Postmenstrual Age. And that is by Catherine Carroll at the University of Technology in Sydney, Australia, and Kenneth R. Herman at Indiana University School of Medicine. And in this study... Um, the authors start from saying that donor human milk, as we know, is being used more and more in um, neonatal intensive care units in NICUs um, to achieve exclusive human milk feedings in preterm infants. And this is being done because there are health benefits to the infants. And one that is frequently um, noted is a reduction in necrotizing enterocolitis um, called NEC, um, which is a a big danger to preterm infants, which has been found to be increased by exposure to bovine um, products. So the trend is to to try to feed preterm infants exclusively human milk. The aim of this study is to determine the cost of donor human milk to achieve exclusive human milk feeding for very preterm infants with the hypothesis that the cost of donor human milk per infant is modulated by the availability of mother's own milk. So babies who have some milk coming from their mothers will have less need for donor milk and thus there will be less expense associated with that. For this study, um, it included preterm infants who were less than 33 weeks gestational age or who had a low birth weight of less than 1,500 grams, and it was a retrospective chart review for a one-year period. The um, diet of each baby was um, determined to be some fraction of mother's own milk, donor human milk, or formula, and a feeding log was retrospectively analyzed for feeding volumes in milliliters and duration in days. So after all the analysis was done, 
the results showed that um, 72% of the 64 infants in the study um, were, sorry, I'm going to start that paragraph again. So after all the data was analyzed, the results showed that um, 46 of the 64 infants in the study, which is 72%, were infants admitted to the NICU who were less than 33 um, weeks gestation received donor human milk. And the mean costs of donor human milk were only $27 for infants of mothers who provided sufficient breast milk through discharge. $154 for infants of mothers who had sufficient milk supply during admission, and 281 for infants of mothers who went home on formula but received any volume of mother's milk during the admission. And finally, $590 for infants who received no, um, of none of their mother's own milk during the admission. And this is in big contrast to some of the previous theoretical estimates, which said that it would cost um, around $1,000 for 10,000 milliliters of um, donor milk if it were given to babies, because that most of those earlier estimates didn't take into account the amount of milk which could be provided by the baby's own mother. So in conclusion, it was found that most NICU mothers, 72% of these very preterm infants, were unable to provide all of the milk necessary for an exclusive human milk diet. But about 15% um, received donor human milk. And the, the price was only 27 to a little under $600 for that donor human milk. This study was done back in uh, 2008, so the price per ounce that was charged was about $4 per ounce at that time. So they're not adding in the price of a human milk fortifier? No, and that was excluded um, from the study. They didn't take into account the, the cost of human milk fortifier, which was added once the infant's um, reached full feedings of about 150 to 160 kilocalories per day. Right. Because the, there is some difference between in, uh, the necrotizing enterocolitis rates between babies who have bovine fortifiers versus human milk fortifiers and otherwise in all human milk diet. Yeah, in this study they talked about the fact that they essentially um, don't allow any bovine products, no bovine fortifiers before 33 weeks. And um, so whether the baby was getting um, mother's milk or donor milk, the, um, some of the preterm infants would have had um, human milk fortifier added to either of those. So the price didn't necessarily change with the amount of donor milk the baby was getting versus the mom's own milk. Hmm. Um, they also said about 10% of the families were excluded because they refused donor milk um, for their babies. So there's a lot more here um, in this study for people who are interested in the topic. I think that what was really interesting to me is that even though the authors you know, said this is in a study where we're comparing the price of the cost of donor milk to the um, 
savings that can be achieved by preventing cases of neck, those studies are touched on in here and it's been um, demonstrated in prior research that because one case of neck can cost, um, medical neck can cost, um, I don't remember what they said exactly, in the eight to $9,000 or $200,000 for surgical neck, it can be, uh, not only is it, of course, worth it for the health of the baby, but financially, it totally makes sense for the hospital, even if they're not getting reimbursed for the donor milk. Right. And that's what our hospital um, in Madison has decided to do. Um, We are going to be providing donor milk and not billing insurances. And we're just starting with our pilot program where we'll use donor milk for babies who don't have sufficient mother's milk until 1,500 grams and then start using formula. But I think there's going to be a lot of pressure by families to continue using the donor milk after 1,500 grams. And I also, this doesn't take into account, you know, the cost of other illnesses that are associated with artificial feeding, like either like length of stay and retinopathy of prematurity, um, oh, yeah, and chronic lung disease. So there's just tons of um, tons of evidence, and there's just not enough evidence about the prevention of those diseases using donor milk. Uh, but there, there's plenty of evidence with mother's own milk. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to see how donor milk is becoming the standard of care when mom's own milk isn't um, available for these really, really preterm infants. And, and also I think that in my experience working with families, it really does, it's another way to emphasize to the families how important breast milk is to say, we're going to support you to produce milk, but if you can't produce enough, then we recommend donor milk. It lets them know that there really is a benefit to not giving the baby's formula. Right, right. Yep, it becomes a medicine too. Yeah, so even if they don't plan on breastfeeding when when the baby leaves, uh, they can hopefully put the energy into providing mother's milk during the time that the baby's so so, uh, premature or very sick. Exactly. Yeah, and I think milk banks um, also are recognizing that they need to su- help to support the the intense the neonatal intensive care unit staff to help them help mothers maximize their milk supplies, and that's something. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I was and, looking at this number. The numbers where it said, you know, for babies whose moms provide no milk, it costs plus $600, and for moms who have sufficient milk, the donor milk costs $27. And what I thought when I saw those numbers was, wow, that's $500 that you could use to support your lactation, you know, hire a lactation consultant for the NICU or money to provide pumps for the moms. That really is money well spent to get the mom's own milk for the baby. Right. That's a great point. Yeah. Good. Okay. So, um, I'm going to talk about the updated World Health Organization systematic review um, of the long-term effects of breastfeeding. Um, It was just published in um, 2013. Uh, The lead authors are Bernardo Horta and Cesar Victoria. They're both from Brazil, and they were also among the authors of the original review that was published in 2007. 
So the authors start out in their introduction explaining that the short-term benefits of breastfeeding are really well established. We know that in low and middle income countries that breastfeeding does lower the risk of death from infectious diseases in the first couple years of life. There's just no question about that. And we also know that breastfeeding can decrease a large proportion of the hospital admissions that occur due to diarrhea and lower respiratory infection, um, lower respiratory infections. And that's even true, you know, in countries like the United States. We also see less allergic illnesses in, in breastfed babies. But this review is looking at how breastfeeding impacts development of adult diseases, which is a much harder thing to be able to measure. So again, this is an updated report from 2007, and they looked at five diseases. They looked at blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, cholesterol, obesity, and, intelli and, and intellectual performance to see how breastfeeding affects those factors, those health indicators in adults. So again, this is a really high-level systematic review. So they look for as many articles as possible in many different languages that have investigated the relationship between breastfeeding and these specific diseases. And the authors follow certain strict quality criteria in terms of the articles that they include in their work and their analysis. So first I want to talk about overweight and obesity. The authors point out that it's always a good thing when you're looking at these sorts of relationships to have biologic plausibility for each of these issues, which in other words means does it make biologic sense that breastfeeding could be associated with less obesity later in life? Well, there are biologic mechanisms that can explain the relationship between breastfeeding and infancy and obesity later. For example, um, one there's actually several mechanisms, but one obvious one seems to be that breastfed babies take in less protein in the first year than formula-fed babies. And a higher protein intake in infancy has been independently associated with the development of obesity. In general, as a summary, they found that the, that longer exposure to breastfeeding does protect against obesity by reducing the risk by about 10%. So it's not as astounding of a difference as what they um, found in 2007, but they still felt that breastfeeding does reduce the risk of obesity. In terms of breastfeeding and blood pressure, the question is how are these related? Um, well, biologically, um, we know that sodium intake in infancy is positively associated with, um, with an elevated blood pressure later on in life. And also, most formulas still don't have those essential fatty acids, DHA and arachidonic acid, which is known, known as AA. Um, and we know that these are in breast milk. And we know that essential fatty acids are associated with a decrease in adult blood pressure. Um, but interestingly, in all the studies that they looked at, they were really not able to see a difference in blood pressure measurements between adults who were not breastfed and those who were breastfed. So in looking at cholesterol, um, they look back at 2007 and they feel that they overstated the relationship between breastfeeding and uh, cholesterol levels. And with the new data, with the new analysis, they also were not able to find um, a significant difference in cholesterol measurement between breastfed and um, artificially fed groups, just like they weren't able to for blood pressure, which is interesting. Um, in looking at type 2 diabetes, one of the biologic mechanisms for 
that relationship with breastfeeding is that formula-fed babies actually have higher insulin levels, which I never knew. And having that higher insulin level could lead to failure of the pancreatic cells called the beta cells that um, secrete uh, insulin. In 2007, they found an association between breastfeeding and a a decreased risk of type 2 diabetes when, you know, the babies were older. And they've still seen that effect, but they're seeing it more for teenagers than older adults. And they're not sure how much of that is related to uh, the reduced risk of obesity among um, uh, uh, breastfed individuals. And then the last thing they looked at is is intelligence tests. And this also makes sense biologically because of those long-chain fatty acids, the DHA and arachidonic acid. These are really crucial for development of the retina and the brain. And the brain. And in their review, they upheld their previous conclusion that breastfeeding is associated with increased performance in intelligence tests by about 3.5 points on average. So they conclude that the benefits listed in this review are stronger for children and for teenagers, but it's harder to see these benefits in in adults, like towards middle age and older adults. Um, and they also spent a lot of time in this review trying to explain why this is such difficult data to mine, because there's so many confounding factors that um, occur. Unfortunately, there was, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there there was a lot of media attention given to this review, and many breastfeeding skeptics touted um, that breastfeeding does not make a difference based on this analysis. Unfortunately, they didn't read through all the other, you know, the confounding factors and the explanation as to why collecting this data can be really hard. And so it became this... Um, this issue that had to be defended by, you know, La Leche League and other groups who tried Mm -hmm. to explain that, you know, this data is limited. I mean, first of all, they're only talking about five illnesses. They're not talking about the long-term reduced risk of, um, you know, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, endometrial cancer, um, the long, you know, the long-term health of adults who don't have neck as a baby um, or don't have, cancer as a baby, you know, or as a child, because we know that childhood, you know, cancer rates are higher in artificially fed um, babies. And so, of course, if a child has cancer, the repercussions of, you know, health as an adult after having childhood cancer is huge. So they don't address that as, you know, as well. So um, I, I think it's, I think this study is very important because it is so high level in terms of how they analyze evidence. But I think it's also very limiting as well. Yeah, it's really hard to to weed out all of those confounding factors. Um, and I I think that it's really exciting that they can see that there is an association with obesity. I mean, that blows my mind that they can go through all of this and find um, that association. And yeah. I think so, because when you think about it, I mean, there's so many other things that happen to uh, older children, teenagers, and adults that affect their risk of obesity, you know, and to think that breastfeeding still is eked out as a factor 
is I agree is is pretty astounding. Yeah. So, um, okay. Um, let's see. And you had one other topic. Yeah, I was um, I was really interested in a case report that also was in the June issue of Breastfeeding Medicine, and um, this report was from um, uh, Dr. Mueller in um, Göttingen, Germany. I'm sure I said that wrong. <laughs> that is um, called the serotonergic overstimulation in a preterm infant after sertraline intake via breast milk. And the title caught my eye because, as you know, um, sertraline, which is also uh, goes under the brand name Zoloft, is an SSRI, um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. This is a class of medications which is used to treat depression. And it's really considered to be one of the first-line drugs to treat women um, who are pregnant and who are breastfeeding because it is very, very safe. It's one of the most studied drugs in lactating women. And it's one of the most common classes of drugs that's used in breastfeeding women because um, depression, which is a common disease, it has a lifetime prevalence of about 16%, um, is most likely to have its onset during the childbearing years and women have a, a greater predominance than men. So the study or the case report was um, discussing a case of a uh, a baby that had um, effects of Zoloft being transferred through breast milk. And the authors report that, you know, although this drug is widely used as an antidepressant during pregnancy and lactation, um, and that's because it does have low placental transfer and low level of excretion into breast milk, there was report of the woman whose baby um, had effects while she was breastfeeding, which then ceased after the baby was weaned. So they report that it has been reported in the past that um, symptoms such as a neonatal abstinence syndrome and serotonergic overstimulation has been reported after in uterine exposure to SSRIs. And the symptoms which are usually self-limiting and peak within the first 48 hours after birth, um, can be um, hypertonia, increased um, and high-pitched cry, frequent stooling. In this case, the preterm infant was exposed um, to sertraline and its main metabolite, which is desmethylsertraline, in utero and via breast milk. And beyond the first 48 hours after birth, the baby had increased clinical signs of um, serotonergic overstimulation. And um, these continued until breast milk was continued on day nine. And what was really fascinating about this study was that they did... um, testing of the mom's serum and breast milk and testing of the baby, and they discovered that the mom had um, therapeutic levels in her blood of the medicine and its active metabolite, and the breast milk had the um, levels which are usually seen in breast milk, which are very low levels of the drug. However, when the baby's blood was tested, um, the baby also had 
levels which were considered to be in the therapeutic range for adults. And there aren't really therapeutic ranges established for infants for this medicine because it's not given to them for therapeutic reasons. But um, it is not the norm for the, the levels to be measured in the in the normal range. And so the physicians taking care of this baby decided that it was most likely um, decreased um, excretion and metabolism of these by the cytochrome P450 um, isoenzymes. And there is variation in those enzymes between different people. And um, as we know in our older patients, they can be affected by um, other medications that people are exposed to, for instance. Um, but different testing that they did of the baby didn't show any. Um, particular um, genetic predisposition that would cause them to have um, altered isoenzymes. So the interesting thing from my perspective of this study was it was really just a reminder that I routinely teach people about medications and mother's milk, and I always start out by saying the vast majority of medications are safe with breastfeeding. There are very few medicines that are contraindications to breastfeeding. And I specifically talk about SSRIs and how safe they are. And so it's sort of a reminder to me that we always have to be careful and and keep an eye out for the unusual. There are always patients that react differently to medications and preterm infants, partly because of their... Um, blood-brain barrier being more open and their immature liver metabolism, of course, are at increased risk. Yeah. You know, it's a good point. And a lot of times when I see moms um, in my lactation clinic who are breastfeeding or pumping, I should say, and they have premature babies in the NICU, and I think about the meds they're taking, I, I think to myself, wow, I'm surprised that, the, that that baby does not have symptoms you know, or side effects from these meds because of how vulnerable those babies are. Um, so it is, that is interesting. I think the other thing is that we don't have enough information about drugs and breast milk. And when you look at the National Library of Medicine ToxNet database, which anyone can go to if they Google T-O-X-N-E-T ToxNet, and then on the left-hand toolbar, click on LACTMED, L-A-C-T-M-E-D, they can search you know, for, for just about all medications and look at the um, effect of uh, these medicines in lactate and not uh, breastfeeding, um, but when you look at the when you look at the data, there are very few case reports, very little data. The studies are very small, and the problem is that we don't have a good tracking system. Like we don't have a registry or a database, and I think that's something that really should be federally funded, because there are so many women taking all sorts of medications that. That Nobody's could keeping you. track of what's going on with exactly. them, absolutely. Right, and I've talked to pharmacologists about this, and my understanding is that running these tests to look at drug levels is extremely expensive. So if we could figure out a way to do this inexpensively or just highly fund it um, or require that 
this be looked at um, by drug companies? You know, it seems like they, you know, if breastfeeding is considered to be foundational, which it is, you know, obviously it seems that there should be some responsibility by the drug companies to look at the effect in lactation, not to say, oh, don't take it, you know, like the PR. Yeah, I agree with you completely. So I think it is their responsibility. I think so too. And I think, you know, because we know how it were, how these drugs work in terms of um, the pharmacokinetics in serum, but, you know, the pharmacokinetics in breast milk is theoretic, you know, it's not really measured. So mm-hmm. um, I think that um, we have a lot of work to do to advocate for something like that. And this would, you know, be just make, would, you know, pr- protect um, babies and mothers from untoward side effects. Um, I would just add, because um, when I need to go to Lactmed, I just go to Google and I type in L-A-C-T-M-E-D, one word, and it's the first link that pops up. Oh, perfect. perfect. The easiest way to get there. So yeah. I go there all the time. But yeah. This is a, a reminder to me that it's always a risk versus a benefits, and remember reminding our patients and the physicians we work with that we just need to keep watching, and, and if there's any signs or symptoms, think about what's causing it, what's going on. Right, absolutely. And um, also, there's a phone app for, for LACMED that oh, is yeah. free on, on, that you can put on your smartphone. So, very good, and I want to um, tell our listeners that we have created a Facebook page for the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine podcasts, so please uh, come to our Facebook page and like us. And we will be posting the articles that we review for each podcast so that people can find those articles for future reference and ask us questions, uh, comments, um, and hopefully we'll have some other tidbits on our podcast, maybe add some other articles that we're interested in um, that people may be interested in knowing about. Awesome. I will talk to you soon. Sounds good. Take care, Karen. Thanks. Bye. Bye. If you have any interest in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine or any questions or comments about this podcast, please email us at abm at b as in boy, f as in frank, med.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks.